Uh, welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast. Today's sponsor, as always, is MailChimp, the world's leading email marketing platform. 12 million people use MailChimp every single day to connect with their customers, market their products, and grow their e-commerce businesses. Send better email, sell more stuff. And thanks again for MailChimp uh, for sponsoring this podcast. We appreciate that. And we always appreciate it when you guys subscribe, rate, review, and all those good things to the podcast too, because today's show was a very good one. We had Jay Michael of, uh, of Comcast DC. I guess that's uh, going to be uh, Mid-Atlantic area specifically is who the, the title for that Comcast network is there. But he covers sports. He covers the Wizards. He is uh, a, a tremendous source of information on the Wizards. And between Prada uh, and Jay, we had a, a really good Wizards talk because they are the hottest team in the NBA right now. So instead of breaking up the Wizards, we are going to diagnose the Wizards. Um, lastly, I want you to find us uh, on Twitter and, and hit us up with the emails, all those good things too, because not just the rating and reviewing, but the questions. We got to a lot of them today, so I think you'll see that uh, your feedback is important and that we take it uh, seriously, so we always appreciate that. You can send those emails to MikePreda at SBNation.com, at SBN on Twitter, at Limited underscore Upside on Twitter, and at EpiBen on Twitter. Guys, sit back and enjoy this Washington Wizards podcast with Jay Michael from Comcast Mid-Atlantic and Mike Prater, who used to do that Bullets Forever thing, too. This is a Limited Upside podcast. Welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast. Jay Michael has covered the Washington Wizards for five years for CSN Washington. Now probably the senior member on the beat. Uh, he joins us this week. And uh, Jay, man, I buried the Wizards maybe a month and a half ago. And now they're the hottest team in the league. And pretty much the only happy thing happening in Washington, D.C. right now. So what's going <laughs> on? Like, what, what has changed? Like, this is an amazing transformation. Like, what happened? Oh, man, it's it's a lot of things. It's not one thing. It's been a lot of things. Um, John Wall's playing better. He got in a better shape after those two knee surgeries. Uh, he's playing his best basketball I've ever seen on, on both sides. Um, uh, Bradley Beal is healthy. Um, he's playing his best basketball, not being strictly just a catch-and-shoot guy, but the diversification in his game. From day one, was at another level, but... Now you see some of these other parts coming together for them, like Marquise Morris, um, Marching Gortat, and, of course, Otto Porter. He's been doing it most of the season. It's like all five of these guys are playing the best basketball that they've ever played in D.C. Uh, and I think the, the guy who's orchestrating all of that is Scott Brooks because he didn't really have a lot of pieces to work with to start the season outside the starting five. Aside from getting those guys up to speed, he had to figure out rotation. And he had a lot of underperformances from the bench. The bench was not very good. It looked factually, factually speaking, Martin Gortat was correct. It was oh, yeah. the worst bench in the league. <laughs> yeah. There's no doubt about that. I know some of the guys on the team took exceptions to that who were on the bench, but the numbers didn't lie. Um, and so he was literal. He found a way to, yeah, it was. It was. It, he found a way to navigate that to figure out who works with whom. Um, he's experimented with a lot of different lineups, a lot of different matchups. And I think the other thing that he's done quite well is that he is, he's added, every time I watch him, I see different things that he's added to what they do offensively um, that, you know, so, wow, I didn't see them do that 
two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Different sorts of actions, movements. I mean, I remember looking at a game early in the season. I want to say it was a Toronto game, the only time that the Wizards played in. And I counted how many times Bradley Beal screened for someone. And I think I had him screening one time in the first half. Right. If you look at Bradley Beal now, he's screening countless times uh, to cause confusion for the defense. And I just think there's, there's just more variety. Um, it, there's a whole lot of things different. And, you know, Scott Brooks has, I think, pushed all the right buttons. Yeah, it's, uh, I find it really interesting that Scott Brooks has, uh, first off, been able to write the ship from the beginning. Sometimes I think people, I know, I know Mike and I did not jump the gun from a Scotty Brooks standpoint. And I, call, I still call him Scotty Brooks, guys. I, I should tell you both that I <laughs> grew up, he was my favorite player on the Sixers. And I uh, got to meet him uh, later in my life. And he was a great guy. He was a point guard for the uh, guy I used to work for, Jeff Herdman uh, at Hacks in, in California, uh, uh, UC Irvine. Your at UC Irvine, Scott cool. Brooks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when I met him, I told him, you're my favorite player, man. And, and I said, all I ever wanted was to have you autograph one of uh, Jeff Rowland's knee braces for me. Uh, but he never did it. How many people do <laughs> you think had Scotty Brooks as their favorite player growing but, up? Well, That's exactly what I was about to ask. <laughs> man, well, so it, it went from Scotty Brooks and then it went right to Daryl Dawkins. Uh, I'm sorry, to uh, Hersey Hawkins, I apologize. Uh, and then and then to Johnny Dawkins, I apologize for the, the, the wrong uh, Dawkins there on the Sixers. But I love the, the backcourt players there. And then as a Dana Barrows fan, I was just a point guard growing up who wanted to be like the Sixers point guards. But Scotty Brooks, man, in particular, as a little kid stood out, because yeah, I was like, how's this guy in the league? I can play in <laughs> hey, the NBA. Hey, guys. Hey, by the way, in college at UC mm. Irvine, Scotty Bro- Scott Brooks was nice. Oh, oh he yeah. was awesome. I don't realize how good he was. Yeah. He was great. Oh, so good. So he good. And a, so was he had a nice should... NBA career. I mean, he was for sure to stick around for that long is not easy. Um, there's no question. But it's funny you talk about stuff that he's incorporated. And I, I agree, but this is like not what I think the rep that Scott Brooks's rep was coming into this year. He was not seen as like an X's and O's expert. A lot of people complained about the Oklahoma City offense and how basic right. it was. And it's kind of interesting now to see. Now that he doesn't have to, I don't want to say cater, but he doesn't want to. He doesn't have to sort of structure the team around kind of two isolation heavy stars. We actually see he's got some ingenuity that we didn't realize. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Look, I was pretty convinced. I mean, before Brooks got hired, um, I was convinced that there has to be a little bit more to him than that. After watching how Oklahoma City dismantled themselves in that series against Golden State, like that was a different. It was a different coach. See, when you take the coach out of the equation and you got Billy Donovan there and you fall into the same habits that got you beat against Miami in the 2012 NBA Finals, that right there tells you it probably wasn't the coach. It it was probably more the players than the coach. And I I probably think also that Scott Brooks learned from that experience as well. Um, That that year off, going around the country, going around the world, looking at other teams, looking at how other coaches – uh, run shop and looking at the differences and how the game has changed. I think that probably helped him quite a bit too. Uh, but, you know, the, the only thing that he's, he's been very flexible when it comes to the offense. Look, I, I'm a big fan of, you know, players have to allow, have to be allowed, have to allow themselves to be coached. And clearly I think some of the players that he had in Oklahoma city were a little bit resistant to that. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, uh, but also the coach has to allow some of those players to be themselves. And I think they found a pretty happy uh, and healthy balance with that between him with John Wall and Bradley Beal leading the way. And so I think that's part of it. Um, 
and um, you know, he, he's pretty he's pretty strict. I, I I did an interview with Marquise Morris. I want to say it was in June. It was right before we went to summer league, so it was early July. And he said to me, he said, "Man, this guy is incredibly strict." And it, it kind of he said he's militaristic. He used that word, yeah. and I said, "Yeah." And I said, "And I said, wow." I said, "Most people wouldn't use that word." If you ask the average person who knows basketball, your impression of Scott Brooks, that word would not come up. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, if you're not going to do it his way, you're not going to play. He's like, that's the first thing that he took away from it. And based on everything that I've seen this season, guys who didn't do things the right way that he wanted to be done, initially it was Kelly Oubre. He got benched for a stretch because he was trying to do things his way. Um, Marcus Thornton, I don't know if he's ever going to get off the bench again this year based on what he was doing. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, some of these guys have gotten knocked down a few picks, and even Marquise Morris. Um, he got Marquise Morris to have more hustle and commitment in that second and third effort, uh, particularly on defense, on closing out shooters at the arc that you didn't see from Marquise consistently throughout his career until now. So I think there's something to that that he's been able to get those guys. That that's a healthy balance, right? You want to be the late drop down the heavy fist. But also, this is a players' league, and you got to give them a little bit of latitude too. And I think he struck that balance, whatever that whatever that balance is, or wherever it is, he's found it. And I think that's been a secret to his success. Can, can I ask a a quick question there in terms of where Wall and Scotty Brooks have been meshing? Because I think I think that's an interesting part of any relationship for new success for a coach, how he gets along with his point guard. Obviously, Wall is also the best player on the team, so there's that extra dynamic of him wanting to make that leap uh, in the mind's eyes of the rest of the, the NBA. We know there's always that Wall versus the national perspective, which I think is always an interesting subplot that kind of feels stupid almost, but because he's a great player, and I think everyone should just acknowledge that. But the point I'm trying to make is, uh, how much of this is having a point guard coach and being able to tap that mentality of uh, of I've been there and I can help you kind of through get through the the leadership, maybe the um, the you know implementation of new offense, whatever it may be, systems, etc. And then secondly, uh, I read a column that you recently wrote, Prada. Thank you for sending that over to me today. I appreciate it. Um, and uh, w- w- you mentioned a lot about communication, trust, these kind of things that always sound like cliched intangible words. But like, talk me through how real that is on a player to player accountability basis, too. So two parts. Well, well, you know, well, if you remember now, he had a he had a coach who was a former player in Randy that's right. Whitman. And Randy Whitman. Sure. sure. But, but but it's the delivery system that's completely different. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> Scott Brooks is a 21st century type of guy, whereas Whitman obviously is, you know, you know, maybe middle ages in terms of some things that he would do. Um, look, the, I think the biggest thing when it comes to John is that he has a he has a personal relationship with Scott Brooks. I think a lot of players will tell you that they didn't have a personal relationship with with Randy Whitman. Um, at least that was the impression that most of these guys have given me. That yeah, you know it. He was there. He talked to you, but you, you didn't have this trust or this feeling or this. Um, um, it was the way he did it. You know, it was just almost like a, they treated him like a coach, like an authority figure. Whereas mm-hmm. Scott Brooks, like I said, he struck a happy balance of both. I think the one thing that Scott has done is, um, you know, if you go back to some things that's happened in the past, Whitman repeatedly calling these guys soft publicly, uh, mm-hmm. calling Marching Gortat his so-called big man. Scott Brooks would never do some stuff like that. Even yeah, though he may be unequally unhappy about the about the way they're doing things, he and he and he'll tell us. Now don't get it don't get it twisted. Brooks will be honest with me. 
She'll be honest with us about like, yeah, Marquise isn't doing this right. John isn't doing this right. Brad isn't doing this right. But it's his way of going about doing it. And he says it, that it comes from a perspective that he's not throwing you under the bus. It's more of a, um, he's built a consensus like, hey, look, he he sat down with John early in the season after that game against Toronto and said, this this defense is not acceptable. You're not doing, he showed him everything that he did wrong. And he, you know, it, you do it in a group session, but he also sits down with guys individually. Yeah. And say, look, this is a problem. And this is what, and, and you'll find each and every one of them will be like, yeah, I didn't do that right. There's no, there's no debate. There's no, there's no, uh, well, I can't believe coach said that. They're like, yeah, he's right. Um, yep. Whereas with Whitman, with Whitman, it became an issue where the, it was really combative. And I think it's the way, that it's not just Brooks, it's that entire coaching staff. They feel like they have a connection with all of them, whereas in all the previous years, out of the six or seven coaches on the staff, you dealt with maybe two of the guys on a routine basis. You didn't really mess with the other coaches. Yeah, sure. Right. In this system, everybody deals with everybody. You, 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 so it's not like you're only dealing with the guards. You're only dealing with the big men, men if you're an assistant coach. It's really, the, the, so the, it's not, it's the entire structure of the way things are set up, not with yeah. just Scott Brooks, but everyone from top to bottom and how they communicate that. And I think that's also helped bridge the gap between John Wall and the post players because it's for years there's been an issue about pick and roll coverage, which they've had trouble dealing with. And so I, I, I think that as well of having everybody together where they don't feel like they're separated in units and they're like against each other or competing with each other. So I think the way Brooks has set that up uh, and he's been consistent. He's never, he's never gone off message. He's never said, Oh, well, you guys are, um, you don't like the way, you know, we're doing X, Y, and Z or, or was, for instance, we gave up too many three pointers in this game. Let's change the defense. Scott Brooks has been the opposite. No, no, no. The system we have in place is fine. You're going to learn how to do it the way I want you to do it. Or we're going to have to find somebody who's going to do it the way I want to do it. And his message has been consistent. And I think guys respect that because they haven't, they feel like they didn't have that before. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I I remember when Randy Whitman was first hired and one of the reasons I felt like it was, it worked right away at the time is that he came on the heels of, when Flip Saunders was here, there was, I think, Flip Saunders would talk a lot in the media about, he would show his frustration, and then I think behind the scenes, nothing really would change as far as rotations or whatever. But Randy Women came in, and he was, you know, he made a statement right away, benching Andre Blatch. He kind of backed up his stuff. But over time, it felt like that that really just stopped working. You know, you needed someone yep. who was much more even-keeled. And the, even Whitman was kind of subjected to the ups and downs. And, you know, he would, as opposed to Flip Saunders, I think he would just kind of vent in these post-game sessions. I mean, Whitman would fall through on, like, some of the stuff he would get mad about, like you said. And Brooks is, is just yep. really striking me how even-keel he is. And... It also helps bridge, I think, the common divide that's always been there, which is the young guys versus the veterans. Um, you don't really see a lot of that yeah. anymore. Uh, I think that's a big factor as well. Um, but it's interesting. We talk a lot about, about Brooks. He's done a great job. I always wonder if sometimes we 
don't give enough credit to some of the personal sort of journeys that these players have, are going on and where they are in their current situation. I think Wall was at an interesting fork in, a road, in the road this year. You know, after the disappointment of last year, he had the injuries, he lost his shoe deal, he kind of was losing his rep around the league. And this was, to me, it felt like very much an incredibly important year for him to reestablish himself. And I think that is, some, is a motivating factor as well for him. Yep, no doubt about it. Um, you know, look, just and last year this time, you know, there was a lot of people nationally saying, oh, Damian Lillard's a way better point guard than John Wall. You know, <laughs> something that I never really agreed, I never really agreed with, but um, because he was having a bad year. Yeah. And, 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 the other, and the other thing, Mike, is that he was, you know, he was playing on a bad knee since the fourth game of the season last year. And part of that is even though Whitman knew the guy's physical condition, he didn't let up on a two and three hour practice. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> which is like Scott Brooks Scott Brooks is a one eighty when it comes to that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean they had an overly cautious plan, I would say, with the back to backs that right. he he was able to ramp through. I mean, that's for sure. I mean and even in the sense of proving themselves, I, I think that the same thing applies to Bradley Beal and to a lesser extent Marquise Morris over time. I mean, Beal just got his big contract and, you know, there's I think Brooks has helped facilitate that, but I suspect as well that any coach may have come in and there would still be something to prove for Bradley Beal. He needed to extend his game. He needed to stay healthy. He need there was some motivation where I think the messenger the, the message was good. The messenger was good, but the messenger was also more receptive, I think, than they would have been in the past. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And, and here's the other thing too to consider about you know the you know the differences that you have with the, the messengers and the coaches have this year. If if there was an if there was an issue between a player and the coach in the past, because Whitman was an old school guy, he would say, "Well, you got a problem. You come you come to me like a man and you bring it up. Otherwise, he would mess with you." And so, what would end up happening? Those that 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 anger that those issues they would simmer all year. And I'm going to give you the perfect example, Martian Gortat. Oh, yeah. The, the <laughs> moment that he called Gortat his supposed big bid after that loss against Oklahoma City because he only grabbed one defensive rebound, I knew all hell was going to break loose. And <laughs> that next day, Gortat went off. Oh, yeah. Like, he was, he was irate. And I talked to Martian maybe, I mean, I want to say this was maybe February or March. We were, we were pregame. We were just sitting there chatting, hanging out. And I said, hey, I said, did you and Witt ever hash that out? He said, no, I haven't talked to him. Now, how, how, could you allow, allow, yeah, how could you allow that type of thing to fester all that time? Yeah. That, that's not going to be good. And so you wonder why players stop playing hard for you or they check out on you. It's because with again, he has this old school philosophy that I'm the man, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the coach, I'm the one in charge. You got a problem, you come to me. Scott Brooks, if he's in that same position, that very same day that he hears about or sees Gortat's comments, he would go right to him, sit him down, and they'd talk about it. And it sounds really simple, like, duh, who wouldn't do that? Um, and that's how you remedy that situation. That's Brooks' approach. So he doesn't let little fires like that simmer throughout the yeah. season to where they become, you know, uh, overwhelming. And just simple management of things like that is just is just light years difference. And you know, I don't want to make it seem like I'm 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 piling on Whitman because he did a lot of good things. It's just that 
he got it to a certain, he got them to a certain point. Right. And then he couldn't, he couldn't get any farther with him and you needed to change the messenger. It makes you wonder what would have happened if they had made the change a little sooner, if they don't have that 2015 playoff run, but I'm going a little far (laughs) afield with that. Um, But Mike spent all of last year on this podcast rehashing that. So uh, we don't need to go over that again. Yeah. So, um, I want to say real quickly, guys, but real, sorry, Mike, before we go on real fast, and it's just a, the icing on the cake as I see it, because I have these in quotations as I was prepping for this, but this is a real, like, in a political sense, these t- these uh, words have come up lately. I got these from uh, Slate's Trumpcast, so it's not like uh, uh, something that's just mine, but the signals versus noise debate, which is something that's uh, potentially real, and just in what's, you know, uh, deciphering uh, what is actually something that matters and what isn't. Um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot more variables that affect players' mentalities now than there used to be and i have this discussion with my friends consistently on the lebron jordan debate and i'm like if you know if jordan and social media good god knows what would have happened uh but alas the the idea being that like that wall and and lillard situation last season wouldn't have mattered as much and there wouldn't be like a comparison of people asking that question or even comparison comparing uh walls uh you know social behaviors and uh um, the way that maybe the media perceives him wouldn't have been as important uh, um, back then, but the signals in uh, back in you know potentially in the um, I think the nineties maybe let's just say. But the last part of this though is the signals and noise when a coach talks to players and a coach talks to media and how that's perceived by the team is really what I kind of just got from you guys talking about Whitman and, and Brooks. The way they handle their business and communication seems to be like that would be the thesis of the, of that last fifteen minutes, right? Is that there is a communication fundamental difference between the way they they handle their organizations because that's really what this is. Yeah, night and day, night, night and day. day. <laughs> okay. well, we're gonna take a quick ad read break, and we'll be right back. This episode of Limited Upside is brought to you by MailChimp. 12 million people use MailChimp to connect with their customers, market their products, and grow their e-commerce businesses every day. MailChimp has been around since 2001. The company started as a side project funded by various web development jobs, but now they are the world's leading email marketing platform. They send more than a billion emails a day. They democratize technology for small businesses, creating innovative products that empower their customers to grow. When you connect to your store with one of MailChimp's hundreds of e-commerce integrations, you can create targeted campaigns, automate helpful product follow-ups, and send back-in-stock messaging. Learn what your customers are purchasing, and then send them better email. MailChimp will also analyze the purchase history of each customer to make smart, data-driven predictions about what they'll want to buy in the future. It's enterprise-level technology made simple for everyone. Just drag and drop. Sending personalized product recommendations to your customers increases sales in just a few clicks. MailChimp detects purchasing patterns in your e-commerce data and uses them to automatically predict your customers' buying behavior so you can target the right people with the right products. It's MailChimp. Send better email. Sell more stuff. Jay Michael from CSN Washington. Uh, and Jay, you, you broke this story over the summer, uh, this whole thing that became a, a big deal, a big enough deal for us. Ben and I did a whole podcast, like, you know, speculating on stuff we don't actually know. <laughs> <with this. laughs> That's what uh, we do here. The, uh, 
the comments about John Wall and Bradley Beal having, I think the wording was a tendency to dislike each other on the court. And I think a lot of people jumped to the conclusion <laughs> that they, or maybe there was some sort of, there was beef there and there was some longstanding beef. But this year, it does not feel like they have a tendency to dislike each other on the court. So my question is, was there, were there bridges that were kind of uh, filled uh to be able to get over that, or was there really was this always kind of blown out of proportion in the first place? I, I, I think what happened is like okay, they made a concerted effort to be better with each other um, this year. Um, I mean, they, they they were better with each other. I think even last year. If you, now the first the, the first time I came on the beat, there was friction, and you know I listed in that piece that I wrote. Um, there were some instances. There were plenty more, but. There are some instances where, you know, you know, in a preseason game last year, preseason game, where they got in the heated words and Allen Anderson had to step in between, hmm. uh, which is kind of odd. And they just, they just were really competitive. It was like, man, in a preseason game, right? Um, and, you know, it's always been an issue with John about taking, you know, when Bradley Beal's the hot hand and John will take a, a forced – do a hero ball type of shot in a game on the line situation and missed. And, um, that happened a couple of years ago in Memphis when Bradley had 34 points. They had a chance to win that game before the all-star break. The play was called for Brad and John took a 20 something foot fall away, step back jumper that had no prayer. Oh, yeah. And they got into it again. They, they got into it after that. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it was Garrett Temple who had to intervene there. So, <laughs> I, you know, look, look, what they're gonna, what, what people are gonna tell you, which is true, is that these kind of arguments happen all the time with teams, and they do. Um, but it happened a lot with them. And when John said that, I think it, the the water was being pushed under the bridge. He was he was admitting that, hey, you know, we've had a tendency to dislike each other. Now, what some people will tell you is, well, that's not really a story because they've kind of talked in piecemeal about their issues dealing with each other, even the previous season. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. The problem is you acknowledge it before the 2015-16 season that it was a little bit of an issue. And then when the 2015-16 season is over, you're still saying it was an issue. (laughs) And you went went 41-41 and didn't make the playoffs. So, I mean, it's definitely an um, issue. Like, I, I, I thought it was ridiculous that people were trying to say, like, oh, no, it's not an issue. Um, I don't know. To me, it, it sort of read like a therapeutic effort on Wall's part to speak out. Like, yes. to acknowledge it was important yes. to be able to overcome it. Is that how you read it, too? Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, don't overreact to where, you know, everybody knew, at least if you were plugged in enough, you knew that there was an 800-pound elephant in the room. So, John, you know, if you talk to John, Mike, he's an honest guy. He'll tell you all of his flaws. Uh, Yeah, you know what? You know, that game they played against Memphis earlier this year that they lost in overtime. He's like, yeah, when I tried to take that last shot, I should have gone to the other side. I screwed it up. Like, that's the kind of guy he is. He's not going to say it's a team mistake. He'll be like, it's mine. He acknowledges all of his flaws, things that he thinks he's done wrong or that he's going to have done better. So, if you're not used to talking to him, that might make you more alarmed than, than it would me. I wasn't alarmed by what he said, but he finally said on record what I knew to be true all along. And because he said it on record, that made it relevant. Um, but they've gone out of their way to be good to each other or better with each other because 
I, I think the other elements that you throw into that mix, and we just talked about Whitman. I don't think Randy Whitman helped out the situation at all. He could have helped smooth some of that over, and he didn't, where yep. Scott Brooks would. Um, the other thing that you had going on is, you know, I written something late last year, kind of a diagnosis before the season was over, on all the things that were problematic. Uh, how Whitman played favorites with veterans, how he called out certain guys and would never call out other guys because he played favorites. Um, how it rubbed people the wrong way. It rubbed Gortat the wrong way. That he treated Nene like with kid gloves. And Gortat would take all the blame for stuff that he did wrong and the stuff that Nene did wrong. But Whit would never tell Nene that. So it's things like that, I think, that contributed to it. And as a result, you had some of the veteran guys, my theory was, and I think it's proven to be true, that they let a lot of these veteran guys walk. Not all of them, like Garrett Temple would have been great to keep there, but they let a lot of those veteran guys walk because they wanted, they thought part of the remedy was to allow John and Brad to run the team and remove some of these veteran guys who they always kind of deferred to. It felt like they had to take a second, uh, a backseat to at times. And so it put them in a position where this is your team in order for them to succeed us for the, and everyone to succeed, you guys not only have to exceed, succeed individually, you're the two best players on the team. You have to also succeed together. And I think the pressure, the friction from that, it can either make you or break you. And what it's done is it's helped push them both to another level. So I think it was therapeutic. It was good for both of them. Because if John doesn't do that and he's not honest about it and they don't address it head on and this festers, we're not talking about a team that's competing for a top four seed in the East. We're talking about a team that's basically going to deconstruct and start over again. So I actually think the result of all of it was good. Hmm. That's good. They, uh, that's, uh, I have a good segue. I wanted to drop right onto that exactly how you ended that last comment, which was uh, we have a bunch of questions about how they will fill their backup point guard position. And luckily, since the two get along so well now, uh, you know, there is no Temple there. Uh, there is no Anderson to break up a potential fight. So uh, it's a good thing that they're they're so amicable uh, these days. Yeah, so we I mean, can get to these questions. Who would even break up the fight nowadays? I, I guess that's the question. <laughs> Nobody there? <laughs> yeah. There's no savvy um, veteran combo guard. Well, there are veteran combo guards who just don't play. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, absolutely. Um, as you, I'm sure you probably guessed, a lot of the questions we're getting are uh, roster up. Because I think everyone, I think fans are a little freaked out just because they see how great the starters work together and how amazing that, that unit is. And they know that if something was to disrupt that via injury or whatever, it it would kind of break the alchemy and the sort of chemistry that has been developed. So I don't know, Benny, you want to get into a couple of these? Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. I'll fire them at you. Uh, Jay, you can handle the first one, and then Mike, you can take the second because they're kind of shades of the same color here. So David Myers asked us, uh, what should uh, they do about the backup point guard position? Make a move or hold tight? Uh, how about backup big? Wait for, uh, I, I guess, Mahimi's coming back at some point. And then Marty uh, Hendershot asks, uh, what what moves could uh, they realistically make at the deadline? And what do they have to offer? Who are the targets? So, Jay, you want to take the first part of that on the backup point guard, and then maybe, Mike, you can tell me about uh, what they actually have to offer. Yeah, I think your best your best bet right now is to stand pat. I mean, mm-hmm. Trey Burke and Thomas Adaransky, I don't – look, would you like them to be better, more efficient, um, be able to score a little bit better? Yeah. Uh, but I think the greatest need right now is trying to figure out, is Jan Mahimi going to be able to play? Because if Jan Mahimi can't play again this year, your backup big is your biggest need, not a, not a backup guard. Because really, behind 32-year-old Marching Gortat, your hmm. next big – who plays is Jason Smith, who's really more of a face-up four. 
So if you make a move now and do something knee-jerk reaction now, that better be one hell of a guard. Uh, and I just don't see that, you know, at least on the free agent market, I don't see anything that would say that you would take that risk. you got to see if Mahimi can come back. They think he's going to play. They expect him to play before All-Star break to assess where he is and what they should do next. So I say Stan Pat, Burke has done well, even though his stats aren't spectacular. Sadoransky is getting a little bit better. And let's face it, if uh, you know Bradley Beal can take over some ball handling duties to help out in that area as well, to help bridge that gap if you miss, say, John Wall for any stretch of games, um, yeah, but I, I think the backup big is the greatest need. But wait and see for now. That's my okay. that's my answer. Okay. And Mike, Mike, what do they have to offer? Well, you don't want to just dis- to to Jay's point. You don't necessarily want to disrupt a good thing. Um, what do they have to offer? I don't. I don't think they really have that much to offer. Uh, I, yeah. I think so. I, I'll slightly disagree, only in the sense that I think it would be nice in a world where chemistry and sort of this person out personal type of things would. We're not in play. I think they could use another wing guy, I, someone else um, to play back up to. To kind of, I'm just a little worried with how, as a fan, with how much John and Brad are playing. I think it'd be nice to have another. I don't know exactly who that person would be or what. It'd be nice to have another two, three swing person. I think, um, but less of a need now. I would say, and definitely, if they don't, if Mahimi can't play, I mean, there, there's been talk about Larry Sanders. There's talk about other other guys, I feel like they, they would definitely need someone better because, again, you know, Jason Smith played really well, but that's asking a lot of him uh, to back it up. But in, in a perfect world, I think it would be nice if they had another perimeter player that could score off the bench. But I just – more as insurance. I don't know if they really have much to offer to do that. So All right. I, and, like, you don't want to mess up a good thing like this. I mean, that's always the, the interesting thing. You see it all the time in this league. Like, a, a team like, like Portland had such a great sort of – hierarchy and balance to what they were doing. And then they made a move for Evan Turner. And it's like one move can disrupt <laughs> a lot of that. Uh, oh, a lot of other factors. It's, it's a really tough balance if you're a GM. Must have been nice to have the number one pick and not the number two pick in that draft, huh, guys? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, what a huge uh, drop-off drop that was. Huh? God, I know. I mean, we didn't have to pick Evan Turner, but alas, the Sixers went ahead and took Didn't they? Turner. I think um, they played like the second, like Wall's first home game, I think, was against the Sixers. And I think he had a triple-double. And that was, I, I think, the yes, moment where, yes, yeah, I, I want to say, I remember, I think I covered that game. That was a, a while ago. Uh, I think it was like doesn't surprise me at all. But uh, yeah, I remember I was that at, being uh, his first game. I was at a really big John Wall game like three years ago in Philadelphia. Where I was kind of just like, oh, wow, he's way more athletic than everybody on this team who's really bad. And and it was it was different the other night when I saw Harden put up his 50-point uh, triple-double live. That was just methodical. That was like paper-cut death. That was, that was kind of crazy. But um, – <laughs> It was it was impressive though, guys. Like I mean, I'm sure you've all seen Harden now play a few times, but that game in particular, his efficiency was just through the damn roof. And the ball is basically in his hands the entire game, so it's mind numbing. He's, he's Gil 2.0, man. He's he's yeah. super Gil. That's what he was. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's incredible. All right, a couple more questions for you, uh, Joe. While we have you here, uh, we got to Brian Rogers' question. We appreciate that, Brian. That was on a timetable uh, for Mahimi, uh, my homie, and my my buddy here, Corey Sudhalter, good friend of mine, uh, wants to know what the ceiling for this year's team is, both in the regular season, that seating, as well as the playoffs. Jay, you're around the team all the time. Tell me what the expectation is. Um, look, the expectation is that they're top four. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to tell you. I, I think they can be three seed. Um, I, I, look, I haven't been that big of a believer in Toronto all year. 
even with the hot start with DeMar DeRozan, something tells me that despite the good season they had a year ago, um, I, I, I don't, I just, I'm not a believer. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll regret saying that, but <laughs> I think the Wizards can get, I think they can jump ahead of him. Um, they can compete with Boston for maybe even a higher seed, but I say they're three seed. And I would say in the playoffs, um, John, John Wall said the Eastern conference finals is the goal, right? If they make a three seed, I will say Eastern conference finals is where they can get to. If they make a three seed, anything lower than that, um, semifinals at best. Uh-huh. Yeah, because then you run into Cleveland in the second round, right. and I don't think that's a right. series they could win. Yeah, <clears throat> something does feel a little off with Toronto, especially right now. Uh, I don't know. They could make a move, though. That would be it'd be interesting to see if they make a big move at the deadline. That might raise their ceiling. Um, it's tough to tell because, like, what the big question I have is, like, what happens if when – I hate to say when, but I mean, you know, it's going to happen at some point this year. Like when one of those starting five players, like, kind of picks up a knock and is out for a, a week or two. You know, how does that disrupt the balance? Because that five man unit has played the second most minutes in the entire league this year, uh, only behind Minnesota. And they're, I believe, like a plus 11 or something per 100 possessions. Um, so that, that starting five is such a powerful unit. And then, the other big unit that they've been playing a lot is when they take when they take Morris out and they play him with the second unit. That's four plus Ubre is a really strong unit as well. Like what happens when that gets disrupted? Like a lot of they don't their bench is kind of they patch it up together and Scott's done a really good job, I think, of you know not staggering too much so that you have those five players playing all those minutes. But what happens when one of those guys gets injured? I mean, I think that's that's the question I worry about uh, with this team. That's why I still think it might be nice to get one more piece if they can. Um, with yeah. that wing player you had in mind, we, we did have uh, Mr. Root asked us about Lance Stevenson. No. So uh, <laughs> just give me a yes or oh, no. God. Okay, oh, no. God. Oh, God. Dear no. God. I, I've been getting bombarded with Lance Stevenson <laughs> for the last couple of days. It's like, have you guys seen Lance Stevenson play? <laughs> have you seen him play? No. You can't be serious. No. Why don't you just bring back Jordan Crawford? How about that? Hey, Jordan Crawford <laughs> did, tell LeBron, did, tell, did tweet at LeBron <laughs> that he's available, did he not? So we uh, do yeah, know he's he alive. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, look, look, if you look at the way Lance Stevenson plays, does he, you think he could play the way the Wizards play and share the ball, the motion, no. the screening, the patience, the IQ? Do you see, have you seen that from Lance Stevenson ever? No. No, what? maybe like for a, a brief stretch in in that one year. Yeah, let it. It'll, it'll be very amusing when the Cavs sign him and he plays with LeBron. Oh God, <laughs> I'm telling you, him, J.R. Smith, LeBron, that's gonna be. Freaking great if that happens. It's gonna be it's gonna and, be an incredible uh, reality television show uh, in the summer. Yes, it um, is. Yes. Uh, we'll get to the last question here because I wanted to put that right into the last topic, and it helps us do that. But only because <laughs> I saw you tweeting about this today, as I started following you, buddy, and I, I I'm very intrigued in this in this conversation too. So I just wanted to get five minutes on on the point guard debate. So Courtney Kennedy asked us: Has John Wall been the second best player in the conference this year? Uh, I probably it's been maybe Giannis, although there's been a dip off recently as Wall has uh, been elevating. Um, and so. First off, place wall. I'm praying to actually you place wall in the conference, and then Jay, let's place wall in the in the in the point guard conversation real quick, just to end this because there's all this speculation uh, always, and we love debating about the point guard rankings. It's the most fascinating position, so we'll just do a quick five minutes on that. So Prada, first and foremost, second best player in the conference. So yeah, far. I mean, 
probably third at best. Because uh, I mean, at I, worst, because I, I, I don't think he's been quite the force that Giannis has been. Uh, I would still put Giannis second, but you look at some of the way these point guards around him have been. You know, I think Kyle Lowry is really good. Uh, I don't think Kyle Lowry has been as quite as good as he was last year. Uh, you know, Isaiah Thomas obviously he's an incredible scorer, but it's interesting that the Celtics struggle so much defensively when he's on the floor. You know, you don't say these things about Wall. You know, for all the things that he doesn't quite do as a scorer, he's much more complete player. So. You know, at this point, I probably would put him third in the East in terms of players, and I would that would mean he'd start uh, the All Star game if this was what it should be. You know, but it's always it's always <laughs> tough. I think last year for sure, I did his year was not nearly as good. Now I was one of those people that was wondering, like, you know, yeah, has he slipped behind guys like Damian Lillard and Kyle Lowry with the way he played last year? And you know, now I think he's bounced back quite a bit. I think his finishing is so much better around the basket. That's the thing that really stands out to me, and. That's probably a combination of being healthy and developing some craft. But, yeah, oh, third is good. But, you know, where does he rank in the league, I think, is a really interesting question because I've always felt like there is there is a level of misunderstanding about his game, uh, what he's good and bad at, um, that has persisted, and that's made it hard to place him. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of difficult. Like, part of it, that argument with point guards is, you know, do you want to score in point guard like a Kyrie Irving? Is that how mm-hmm. you envision a point guard like a Steph Curry? Or do you want a guy who is a, a two-way player? I, I, I tell everybody straight up, I prefer guys who play two ways, especially at the point guard. Because, you know, the Isaiah Thomas example is perfect. Like when the Wizards had that funeral game against them. Um, <laughs> as good as Isaiah Thomas is offensively, they went at him with Walt and Bradley Beal. They tried to put him on Bradley Beal. He got posted up mid-post and got abused. Um, they ran him through so many screen rolls to try to make him lock and trail, and he had no idea. I mean, he's, number one, he's too small. That's not his fault, right? But you can exploit him every which way possible, and you can completely take advantage of that in ways that you could not do with John Wall. So in, even even you know John Wall's biggest weaknesses of course he gambles too much at times he can get a little bit loose but i think brooks has kind of reined him in so among people players in the east um i would put him over now you said players or point guards in the east so so that was just that was just players in the conference but i was specifically trying to figure out too like where you'd place him in the overall point guard conversation for the whole league too so go for both if you like okay yeah yeah okay well i would say in the okay well I was thinking in the East, I would actually put him above Lowry, above Isaiah Thomas, above Kimba Walker, and above Kyrie Irving based on the criteria that I look for in the point guard. Because uh, I think defensively, all of those guys are inferior to him. Um, yes, league-wide, league-wide, probably a healthy Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, I'd probably put him third. Ahead of Steph Curry? Here's the thing about the thing about uh, Steph Curry again. Remember what I just again my criteria sure. defense. I'm I'm including defense in it. Now, if you're talking about scoring point guards, offensive, okay, you know Steph Curry is up there, Kyrie is up there. Yeah. That's a different list. So I'm looking at it on both sides, um, and I, I I would fear. I look at it this way: if I were defending, <laughs> if I were going in and I had to defend somebody and I had to scout to defend someone. I'd be more worried about John Wall because of his size, his strength, his ability to affect the game without scoring. 
And if Steph Curry is shooting four for 25, four for 20 from the field in a particular game, I don't think his impact on the game is great. Now, people are still going to, he's still going to spread out the defense because you're feared that he's going right. to get hot and he's going to start lighting up. I mean, like, there's a shadow impact there that is like, even when he's yeah, not shooting I mean, well, that you have how, to, but it's how much so that, great. Here's, here's, here's the thing that I wonder, though. If he wasn't on Golden State, right, with all the pieces they had, and he was on a team that was a good team, but, you know, let's say if he was in Portland, instead of Lillard, it was Steph Curry and CJ McCollum. Would he still be good? Yeah. Would he be revered that highly? I'm not so sure. Because yeah. he doesn't. Sure. But I think part of it has to do with the team that he's on, the system that he's in. And when you have Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson spread out with you, it makes yeah. you that much better just by their presence. So, yeah, I, I mean, a, it's hard. I disagree with that yeah. just because I feel like I feel like he makes the system, but I take your point. Like I, I feel like it's actually the cause and effect is the other way. Um, as like they've played so much better once they realize that Steph is like the yeah. guy that needs the ball. Yeah, I tend to I tend to agree. I feel like the history on this is that like Steph kind of started to emerge into something they didn't even know that they really had or necessarily, and it was like holy shit, we can we can put a whole offense around this. But I do agree. Completely on the on, yeah. but but wait wait you guys think you think God, you guys think Steph is more important in that system than Draymond? Well, not not when you add defense in there. I mean, Draymond defensively is is the Steph of the defense. But no, I I, I think Steph is the the fulcrum of everything they do. The fact even with Durant, you know, early in the year they were still really good, but they weren't quite as good because Steph was not as involved as he has been the last month. You know, we're we're kind of drifting off a little bit in this discussion, but I take your point that there's there's sort of a and this is going to be interesting to watch in a playoff series, right? Because I think the knock on wall, besides all the stuff you talked about, is that just you can just go under on him, and if he's making his shots, obviously you can't stop him. But you know, if you play the percentages, that's like not a terrible play, and he'll be eager for that. He's gotten better at that, but you know. What you definitely can't do is you can't pick at him at the other end. And that's going to be interesting to watch in, in, in the playoffs because all these teams that are ahead of the Wizards in the standings, I feel like when you look at that starting five with the, that the Wizards have and that they're going to play even more in a playoff series than they are in the regular season, there isn't like kind of one area where you say, yeah, I, I can go at that guy. Maybe you could say if you have a really good isolation score, you could – you could go at Otto Porter because as great a defender as he is as a help defender, he's a little slow-footed on the ball. But there isn't like one weak spot, whereas if you play the Celtics, it's exactly like you said. Like, we're going to run, you know, 2-1 pick and rolls and make Isaiah switch. You know, and with with the Raptors, it's you're going to do that with the Rosen. There, there isn't that with this Wizards starting lineup at least. Right, right, and that, and 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 the thing, and the thing about Toronto that I just don't trust. Like as hot as Demar Derozan started out the season, I just have difficulty. I've watched him so closely that he he still he the the shot selection seems to get worse and worse, but he makes them. And I just think the law of averages catches up to him on those, particularly in a seven game series. Yeah. Agreed. And their lack of the the, the lack the four position for me is still a weakness in there. Also, I mean, you look at last year; they made it to the Eastern Conference Finals, but they had to really struggle to get there against teams they should have wiped the floor with, based on. But they didn't have that four position secured. So, uh, yeah, I look at Toronto and I see them being incredibly vulnerable. Um, and I think you're right though about Wall and Gordon on the screen. If you saw the game against the Pelicans that Wall played, they kept switching Monte Unis 
which yeah. blew my mind. I saw, I saw them doing that in some other games this season. You know what? Initially, he got burned, but you know what Wall did? Every time he would get the ball on the switch, he would back the ball out and dribble, and he kept taking those shots, and they were content. Instead of the moment that he caught the ball, when Monte Yunus was in the process of switching, he needed to attack him immediately and trust that his speed was going to get there, get him to the rim. And he settled. And that is his biggest weakness, in my opinion, that he will settle for shots when he's got a clear mismatch that he could have beat that guy on the catch the minute he got the ball. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting. The, the one last thing I want to just ask you about uh, before we go, and this is something that our Mike Sykes at Bolts Forever wrote about, and it's sort of, to me, it's interesting that they're such a good home team now because they've talked so much to you and to everybody else about the lack of home court advantage they have. Uh, do you sense that changing? You know, or is it just oh, that, I mean, and what are the players thinking about this? Uh, I'm kind of curious. Like, do they, they see it too? Oh, they're blown away by it. Um, let's be honest here, man. There, there are times when, you know, when this season began, there was absolutely no home court advantage. You know the kind of excitement you expect to see on an opening night just because it's opening night? It was absent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it was, I mean, seriously, it was, I was shocked that it was so lifeless in that arena. Um, and my thought was, okay, they didn't play well last year. They didn't play as hard as they should have last year. But they were 41 and 41. They weren't, you know, they weren't the Sacramento Kings, you know? Um, Nobody is. <laughs> it's like, wow, how, how, how quickly after two playoff runs in one subpar season, everybody just falls out. I just feel like in this town, people check out so quick. Well, right? They look for the, 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 the moment that they see a little bit of slippage, oh, that's it, and they pull the plug and run. I think part of that was not only because of the season, but because they didn't get Kevin Durant, and they were really disappointed. I yeah. think that factored heavily into that. Yeah, I, I also think that, you know, we're, this is like a, a lot of the most diehard fans, you know, 30-year fans. I mean, there just hasn't been – every time there's been a little uptick in those 30 years, it just kind of comes falling apart. So you sort of are like the dog get, that gets abused too many times. You're just sort of looking for things that are going wrong. And so when it starts to go wrong, there is a hysteria. I, I think there's sort of an institutional element at play here. But it's interesting no that no it's like a sleeping giant – there somewhere and I have noticed at least in the TV that it's been much more alive and it's not just like sort of a coincidental we're in our own beds there is some sort of energy there and it's interesting because that John Wall said something about this recently you know hey we're winning and like I don't blame them for not showing up when we're losing and now we're winning um and look that's a long time yeah and it's it's yeah the, the energy is different uh you still get fans from the other team showing up but they're not as it's not as pronounced as I've seen in, in, in seasons past. Um, and it's, there, there is a, I think it's, I think it's even more than winning though, Mike. I think it's that they see them playing hard. They see them yeah. playing smart. Um, and it, it's, it's, you just know, you know when a team is playing hard, when you see it, regardless of your basketball like you, and you know it's when true. a team is dogging it. And I'm going to be honest with you. There were times last year, and there was one game that was on the road against the Denver Nuggets. I don't know if you remember that game where the Wizards were winning by double digits, gave up 41 points in the first quarter, excuse me, in the fourth quarter. Oh, yeah, yeah. All the garbage players. There was one particular player who I will not name who I went to and asked, and I said, I think he quit. And he said, yeah, I just was disgusted by this whole thing. And 
And I think people sense that, and they resented some of that that came yeah. out of that team. And I think there was some backlash or some of those things too. But when people see you playing hard and the commitment, look, Jason Smith was one of the most widely booed six-star <laughs> players that I've ever seen, right? Not only just on social media, but at games. I mean, you could hear people every time Jason Smith would fumble the ball or a brick a shot or, or whatever in, in the first couple of weeks of the season. He got the venom for the crowd like nobody else. Oh, now listen to them every time Jason Smith enters the game. He's like Brian Scalabrini. He's a fan face. <laughs> it's the same, same way in the comment section on Bolts Forever. <laughs> same way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like you guys, you guys were skewering this guy. Like he, he was a waste of money, a waste of space. But he plays hard and he plays smart. And they see this team playing hard and smart. And even when they, they, they might come up short, you see the effort and the energy and the commitment there, and I think people connect with that. And yeah. nobody brings up nobody brings up Kevin Durant anymore. You know, um, this this conversation sounds pray to second this, please. Doesn't this sound just like that Sixers podcast we did like two weeks yeah, ago? Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> very, and that's a great we're, thing. We're in a very rare situation where both our teams <laughs> really are, are. are doing good things. Like that never happens yeah. to us. <laughs> yeah. No matter what we do. Yeah, but it's a palpable thing. You can f- 100% agree. And, and Jay, I'm sure you feel it on a much more day in and day out basis. But, like, uh, there is nothing better than having a good basketball team in your city. Like, the D.C. metro area plays basketball. Philadelphia plays basketball. These cities that actually can appreciate the game. And I, you're totally right. Effort, playing smarter, actually running an offense, in Philadelphia's case, um, this season and, and having, like, something to look forward to. And I think there's a long-term projection, too, where the fans kind of see, like, Maybe this backcourt, which was supposed to take us to the, you know, to the championship, you know, or to the Eastern Conference Finals in this case, maybe this year, actually is that backcourt. And that last year was the fluke and the outlier and that the, uh, you know, Eastern Conference Finals, the previous seasons uh, were, were not. So maybe that helps the uh, collective psyche. And maybe people are just looking for an outlet and basketball is a damn good outlet, right? All right. Hey, there's <laughs> got to get something in D.C. for people to smile about. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But uh, no, Jay, we really appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, this is a... Uh, it's always nice to have a true voice of a team uh, come on and, and talk to us on this podcast. Because like we said, most of the time it's just armchair psychology and speculation. So, <laughs> so we, we appreciate it, man. All right, guys. Hey, I appreciate it. Anytime. Look forward to doing it again. Awesome, man. Take care. And that was really fun, positive podcast uh, for the Wizards. And, Mike, that's two in a row for us having positive podcasts for our teams. We hope to keep this trend moving in the same direction. And until next time, everybody, this is the Limited Upside Podcast. Integrate and connect your store with MailChimp in order to personalize and automate your marketing. Visit MailChimp.com to learn more.